This is Open Book, a podcast about interpreting literature with Michael Elliott. Welcome to Open Book Season 2, Episode 11, How to Read Philip Larkin. I'm Michael Elliott, Associate Professor of English at the University of Calgary. Today's topic is the university librarian, jazz writer, arts administrator, sometime novelist, and renowned poet Philip Larkin. You are forgiven if you haven't heard of Larkin. He's not as well-known as other mid-century British writers like Iris Murdoch or Kingsley Amos. The difference is that they were primarily novelists, while Larkin published just two novels and left two more unfinished. The phrase famous poet can seem like a contradiction of terms, I suppose, particularly in the mid to late 20th century. You can count them on one hand, but Larkin was one of them, admired and respected in his lifetime for a modest output for published collections, better known, if known at all, as a reviewer of jazz records in the Daily Telegraph newspaper, and a university librarian in Belfast, Northern Ireland, and in Hull in East Yorkshire. In 1984, when the poet laureate died, Larkin was actually offered the position but turned it down. This was a state position that required the office holder to write poems on momentous occasions like royal weddings or disasters like train derailments. Well, I would actually put various royal weddings of the 1980s in that second category. But as I say, Larkin turned the position down. He feared that his poetic gifts had been exhausted. So the job instead went to Ted Hughes. Larkin was a tall, heavy-set man with heavy spectacles, bald and deaf, and he felt at that stage burdened by his sense of what he called age and then the only end of age, namely death, and he, accordingly he died a year later of cancer in 1985. We're reading four poems of Larkin's in this episode, in the order that they appear in the Norton Anthology of Poetry. They are Church Going, An Arundel Tomb, The Trees, and This Be the Verse. So, let's get underway. We're going to start with two poems that are set in churches. The first is Church Going, and the second is An Arundel Tomb. And both of these poems are in some ways similar in that they have a speaker who expresses uncertainty and ignorance about the meanings of certain things that he sees. For instance, in An Arundel Tomb, uh, lines 30 to 31, go, The endless altered people came washing at their identity. And this probably refers to the way that the visitors to Chichester Cathedral, where this tomb is, uh, is situated, are not very aware, really, of who the Earl of Arundel was. After all, this is an, a pretty obscure aristocrat who uh, died sometime in the 14th century. Although Larkin is capable in that poem of evoking the meanings of the love between the, the Earl and his Countess. However, we're not going to talk about that first. We're going to look first at ch church-going, both because it appears first in the anthology, but also because it speaks more directly to the experience of visiting 
English country churches in this case. Quite different setting from a cathedral in an Arundel tomb. This is a small, small parish church somewhere in Northern Ireland near Belfast. And Larkin wrote uh, to a friend, One Sunday afternoon in Ireland, when I had cycled out into the country, I came across a ruined church, the first I had seen. It made a deep impression on me. I had seen plenty of bombed churches, but never one that had simply fallen into disuse. And for a few minutes, I felt the decline of Christianity in our century as tangibly as goose flesh. That reference to bomb churches is probably uh, referring to Coventry Cathedral from Larkin's hometown, the one that was bombed by the Germans in World War II and later rebuilt. But Church Going is a poem about a church that has simply declined into disuse. The, 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 ter- the title means the practice of church-going, as if it's hyphenated, but it also has a, d- a double meaning, which means the church itself is going. It is passing away into disrepair and neglect. Let's just start reading, shall we? This is the beginning of church-going, the first stanza. Once I am sure there's nothing going on, I step inside, letting the door thud shut. Another church, matting, seats, and stone, and little books, sprawlings of flowers, cut for Sunday, brownish now, some brass and stuff up at the holy end, the small neat organ, and a tense, musty, unignorable silence brewed God knows how long. Hatless, I take off my cycle clips in awkward reverence, move forward, run my hand around the font. I'd just like to pause here and do a little bit of analysis. So the, there's a deep sort of d- double meaning to the word nothing in the first line. Uh, there's nothing going on in the sense that there's no event happening, but there's also kind of a deeper sense of inactivity. He goes inside and then there's this kind of anticlimax when he just says, matter-of-factly, another church meaning that he's going to see some of the things that he expects to see, matting seats and stone and books and flowers and so on. But so this is a kind of conventional space. He knows what expectations it will meet. But he doesn't have very precise knowledge of the furniture, of the accoutrements of this place. For example, there's this vague gesture toward brass and stuff at the holy end meaning the front, because, of course, you enter at the rear and look forward, look toward past the, the pews, the benches, that is, toward the front where the, the preacher appears and the ceremonies happen. He also has this kind of, uh, he uses the word awkward, uh, because he, he knows that when you enter into a holy place like this, you are supposed to remove something. Uh, you're supposed to remove your hat as a, as a marker of respect, for instance, but he doesn't have a hat, so all he can think to take off are his cycle clips. So we've seen that he's kind of ignorant, kind of uncertain of himself, but also curious, and he kind of extends this into the second stanza. He starts sort of kind of messing about, looking around and and seeing what he can explore, even though he's still pretty ignorant of the place. Let's continue from line 11. From where I stand, the roof looks almost new, 
cleaned or restored? Someone would know. I don't. Mounting the lectern, I peruse a few hectoring large-scale verses and pronounce here endeth much more loudly than I'd meant. The echoes snigger briefly. Back at the door, I sign the book, donate an Irish sixpence, reflect the place was not worth stopping for. This is Northern Ireland, so the, that which is part of the United Kingdom, so a sixpence from the Republic of Ireland did not have much value at all. It's kind of an en empty gesture, rather like removing your cycle clips. There's not much point to it. And it's a kind of ceremonial thing. You donate something, you remove something. So he's kind of going through these motions. Uh, and then when he goes through other motions, like mounting the lectern and kind of performing a, a lesson reading from the Bible, these two are kind of not, not parodies exactly, but not sincere performances either, if you see what I mean. He does say things for like, for example, someone would know, I don't. Other people would know. There's all these sort of terms of uncertainty, terms of ignorance, and they're going to continue into the third stanza. Let's start at line 19. Yet stop, I did. In fact, I often do and always end much at a loss like this, wondering what to look for. Wondering, too, when churches fall completely out of use, what will we turn them into? If we shall keep a few cathedrals chronically on show, their parchment, plate, and picks in locked cases, and let the rest rent-free to rain and sheep, shall we avoid them as unlucky places? So, before we go further, he is, again, at a loss, Line 20, doesn't has at a loss what to do, at a loss what to think, wondering what he's supposed to look for, and then not just thinking about the, the present moment, but thinking about the future. So this is a place that has already fallen out of use. It is, as I said, a kind of abandoned, uh, ruined, not ruined exactly, but declining church. And... He thinks about the future of such places. There is a decline of faith, certainly a decline of the practice of church going. And he wonders if perhaps cathedrals, which are very grand, might just become kind of museum pieces, places that you visit that are full of relics of earlier ages and themselves becoming relics of earlier times. And they contain in this nice alliterative three-part structure in line 25, containers for things like that are holy, that were believed to be holy objects, parchment, plate, and picks, or, part, or ceremonial objects, ceremonial things that actually had meaning. In line 26, I emphasize the word let because it means lease in uh, the United Kingdom, so to, in, in, in British English anyway, to, to let uh, a property is to lease it out or to rent it out. That's why he says, so shall we just allow the others to uh, be, you know, exposed to the elements and have sheep wandering through them? But Larkin, or sorry, it's Larkin's speaker at that moment, casts his mind toward a kind of future in which this place will fall utterly into ruin. Let's uh, continue on with stanza four. Or, after dark, will dubious women come to make their children touch a 
particular stone, pick simples for a cancer, or on some advised night see walking a dead one, power of some sort or other will go on in games, in riddles, seemingly at random, but superstition, like belief, must die. And what remains when disbelief is gone? Grass, weedy pavement, brambles, buttress, sky, a shape less recognizable each week, a purpose more obscure. I wonder who will be the last, the very last, to seek this place for what it was, one of the crew that tap and jot and know what rude lofts were, some ruin bibber, randy for antique, or, or Christmas addict, counting on a whiff of gown and bands and organ pipes and myrrh. I'm going to pause there because you have, again, a three-part structure in line 44. It's kind of like the three magi coming to the birth of uh, Jesus and, and giving gold, frankincense, and myrrh in, in that uh, Christmas reference, that sort of pageant or, or replication uh, or the declined kind of version of that event. But he suggests that the only people who will be doing that, who will be looking for that, will be one of this crew in line 40 who really know things and love and are addicted to ruins, who love antique places and know things like rude lofts, which is a part of the church structure. The rude, by the way, is the cross. Going back a few lines to the beginning of this uh, fourth stanza, I'm really curious about this word dubious. It kind of feels like it connects to the word disbelief in 35, because the word dubious technically means full of doubt, or really more something that you actually disbelieve. You could say, for example, that's a very dubious argument, meaning it's, it doesn't have merit. It doesn't provoke belief. It doesn't uh, build credibility. But in this case, line 28, a dubious woman, uh, it feels like she is a woman who herself is full of doubt. She expresses certain doubts, but not quite enough that it's going to prevent her from associating this, this place, these stones, these ruins, uh, with some kind of talismanic, almost magical power. And indeed, that's, that's the speaker's words, two lines, uh, 32, uh, a couple lines later, in line 32, power of some sort or other will go on. And yet, there's going to be a limit to this power. It will die, line 34, uh, eventually. And when the disbelief is gone, well, ultimately, this place will become kind of like a, a future Stonehenge, a place that uh, we know had some significance. We know must have been important, and yet we have really no idea what it, re what it truly was to the people who constructed it, the people who occupied it. Let's pick up the poem again. At line 45. So he's just asked, will some of the people who go back to these ruins be the ones who are kind of nostalgic for uh, the gifts of the Magi, the, of the Christmas and ruins and, uh, and so on? Or will he be my representative, bored, 
uninformed, knowing the ghostly silt dispersed, yet tending to this cross of ground through suburb scrub, because it held unspilt so long and equably what since is found only in separation, marriage, and birth, and death, and thoughts of these, for which was built this special shell. For though I've no idea what this accoutred frousty barn is worth, it pleases me to stand in silence here, a serious house on serious earth it is, in whose blent air all our compulsions meet, are recognized, and robed as destinies. And that much never can be obsolete, since someone will forever be surprising a hunger in himself to be more serious, and gravitating with it to this ground, which he once heard was proper to grow wise in, if only that so many dead lie round. I think it was by the time I read this uh, penultimate stanza, the one that starts on line 46, that I started to, n to recognize that there were words that uh, Larkin was using in this poem that were all of a singular theme, and that theme is ignorance. I mean, it's a bit obvious when you, when you look at it, really, but you start to notice that there are phrases like no idea, line 52, uninformed, line 46, uh, obscure, line 38. We already talked about dubious and disbelief. I'm still going backwards in, this, in the poem. Uh, someone would know, line 12, also 41, one of the crew that tap and jot and know these things, someone would know I don't, uh, and God knows in uh, line, line 8. So, what's the significance of that pattern? Well, I suppose the only thing that I can recognize here is that he concludes a little bit, obviously, I guess, during line 52. He says, although I have no idea what this place is worth, it pleases me. And then there's this conclusion. So before we get to the conclusion, it pleases me to stand in silence here. By worth in uh, line 53, he doesn't mean financial worth, I don't think. He means more of a, a human value, what more of a sense of purpose, what this place is for. So he has spent a lot of time, and I just noticed a new pattern as well, the word wondering and wonder appear a couple of places, line 21 twice, line 38. And that seems appropriate given the number of questions that he poses, the kind of uncertainty that is expressed, and there's also this, this uh, awkward ignorance. I think you're starting to get his uh, feeling of conclusion, or you're starting to move rather toward the conclusion that he's building when you have the word um, separation in line 50. So this is the thing. First of all, there's this beautiful, beautiful instance of consonants, both the repetition of, of consonants and of uh, vowels, uh, so alliteration more properly, uh, in line 48, suburb scrub, and through suburb scrub, so that's um, that's a beautiful instance of alliteration because you have the, both the S's and the B's and the U's, of course. So um, that's the kind of... Um, 
definition or rather uh, description of the the unbefitting kind of uh, desultory um, marginal space that this uh, church exists in uh, and it also uh, it it holds what since is found only in separation that's why uh, this place was built so in separation that is a uh, in our in our um separate lives uh, this place those events that happen marriage birth death and thoughts of them used to happen communally but now since they happen separately these in line 56 our compulsions we are compelled to think of these things these rites of passage and so they this is the natural place for people to convene not merely for the sake of commonality and community but for the sake of what he uses the word three times in the last stanza uh, serious a hunger in himself to be more serious but he's mentioned okay he's mentioned a couple of times in the preceding stanza uh, the ground lined 47 right at the end the suburb scrub the kind of surrounding you know uh, un, untended land at the edge of a city at the edge of society uh, and then he's mentioned again the ground this ground line uh, 61 but the the uh, sort of distillation of that is a serious house on serious earth which is a very poetic formulation, but it's also a suggestion that this is a place where experiences can become wisdom. The closing image of church going is of the dead lying around the church, buried, that is, in the churchyard. In the next poem, An Arundel Tomb, Larkin focuses all of his attention on a single grave, or rather, a tomb. The difference being that the body in a tomb is, is above ground, is encased usually in a lead coffin, usually within a large stone rectangular structure. And in the Middle Ages and well beyond it, one of the conventions, particularly if you were a very aristocratic, that is, wealthy family, you would commission a sculptor to carve um, effigies, that, uh, that is, statues. This is, that's the word effigy in line 14. You would commission a sculptor to carve an effigy of yourself and usually of your husband or wife uh, next to you. So you're both lying in a recumbent posture that is on your back, usually with a stone pillow, often with your hands in prayer or in some other gesture, gesture of piety, a gesture of, in this case, a gesture of love. And what uh, Larkin's speaker notices when he approaches these two, again, this is Richard Fitzalan III, the 13th Earl of Arundel, and his wife, Eleanor. Uh, you would be forgiven if you had not ever heard of these people. In fact, you'd be in very good company, as, uh, as the speaker says shortly. He says that how soon, line 24, how soon succeeding eyes began to look, not read. Sorry, line 23, I should say. And so the eyes of people have looked on this tomb for ages, for centuries, really, in ignorance, in more or less indifference. 
But when our speaker comes to them, he recognizes certain little details of their, of their statuary, of their effigies, that he finds very moving. So let's look at what they are. And in this time, I know sometimes it's great to break down poems by pausing in the middle. Uh, other times it's a little bit fractured. So this time I'll read it start to finish before going through some details. An Arundel Tomb Side by side, their faces blurred, the earl and countess lie in stone. Their proper habits, vaguely shown as jointed armor, stiffened pleat, and that faint hint of the absurd, the little dogs under their feet. Such plainness of the pre-baroque hardly involves the eye until it meets his left-hand gauntlet, still clasped, empty, in the other. And one sees with a sharp, tender shock his hand, withdrawn, holding her hand. They would not think to lie so long. Such faithfulness in effigy was just a detail friends would see, a sculptor's sweet commissioned grace thrown off in helping to prolong the Latin names around the base. They would not guess how early in their supine stationary voyage the air would change to soundless damage, turn the old tenantry away. How soon succeeding eyes begin to look, not read, Rigidly they persisted, linked, through lengths and breadths of time. Snow fell, undated. Light each summer thronged the glass. A bright litter of bird calls strewed the same bone-riddled ground, and up the paths the endless altered people came washing at their identity. Now, helpless in the hollow of an unarmorial age, a trough of smoke in slow suspended skeins, above their scrap of history, only an attitude remains. Time has transfigured them into untruth. The stone fidelity they hardly meant has come to be their final blazon, and to prove our almost instinct almost True, what will survive of us is love. Now, that ending, maybe, well, the cynic in me might say it's a little bit sentimental, but that would be too cynical. Uh, Larkin later said about this ending that what survives of us is love, quote, whether in the simple biological sense or just in terms of responding to life, making it happier. And it is also... Uh, a refutation of one of the assertions of the Song of Solomon, which is that love is strong as death, which I take to mean that it is only as strong as death, that is, that death is the end of love. So it's quite a consolation, though, to think about things surviving beyond our lives, beyond our small time on this earth, in this case, it may or may not be sincere. It may be, first of all, line 15, a detail just for friends. It could be a sculptor's whim. And yet, there they are, side by side, holding one another's hand as a signifier of the love they shared. And you get the feeling, I get the feeling, that uh, the speaker was kind of 
found this just another tomb among many. After all, it probably certainly was in Chichester Cathedral. There are many tombs like this. Uh, but that is to say, first he says that this plainness hardly involves the eye. Involves is a great verb there because it doesn't mean the way that we tend to use it now, like that doesn't involve me. Well, it does mean that. It, it, the word involve means to to entangle or surround or roll into. The word, the Latin verb volvere literally means to roll. So it doesn't roll, it doesn't pull your eye into and envelop it into it until, until one sees with this sharp, tender shock, the, the hands. Actually, before I go further, one of the things that I've noticed just in reading it now is the way that um, Larkin's speaker actually never directly addresses himself, presumably it's a he. So, for example, the words like one sees in line 11 and the I in line 8. And there's a shift in, uh, I suppose, all the way to the end, line 41, our almost instinct. There seems all the way through, in other words, to be this deliberate depersonalization uh, of the experience. So why would he be depersonal? Or why would he de depersonalize this experience? Well, partly it is because he's trying to imagine himself into the position of these endless altered people who are coming in this unarmorial age. That is a time of history when people don't know how to read things like heraldry. Uh, this is why the word blazon uh, in line 40 is important, because a blazon used to mean a heraldic shield. Uh, it's not just a record of virtue, as the Norton Anthology of Poetry tells you in the note. That's the figurative meaning, but the literal meaning is this shield that was usually used as a signifier among uh, knights and aristocratic people to signal to each other what their identity was, what their family was, which thus later got sort of falsely, I suppose, equated with what their virtues were. But look at that whole sentence, uh, or rather the first part of that sentence, line 38 following, the stone fidelity they hardly meant has come to be their final blazon. So this attitude, this posture attitude, means the, the position of their bodies, their statuary bodies, uh, has, meant to, has meant to signify this, this uh, conclusion about the survival of love despite the effects of time. Through line 25, lengths and breadths of time. I love, my favorite part of this poem is that description of the way that snow and light and birds all combine to become these uh, signifiers of the way that time has passed through centuries and centuries. And the choice of that word, 31, washing at their identity, it means, I guess, I suppose it could mean two things. One is that these people are washing away at them like waves of water that are washing and washing and eroding them through time, which is why I think you get in the first line, their faces are blurred because they've been eroded which is, by the way, also just an effect of air, ultimately, on stone. It's the oxidation. 
But I feel like wash could also possibly be referring to sort of covering over with layers of, of color, even of a watery liquid to sort of whitewash something to cover it over in artistic techniques to cover over and obscure something. So, Church Going and An Arundel Tomb are both poems about time and about faith and what remains behind of the places and the activities that used to signify and give meaning to the lives of those who occupied those places. In The Trees, he takes up a natural symbol. And he uses that symbol in this very simple little poem about the passage of time and about how trees which renew their greenery and their new growth every year have a an almost well uh, i suppose an unsentimental view of the way that time leads to uh, the renewal of all things let's read it and then look at some of its words in detail the trees the trees are coming into leaf like something almost being said the recent buds relax and spread. Their greenness is a kind of grief. Is it that they are born again and we grow old? No, they die too. Their yearly trick of lo looking new is written down in rings of grain. Yet still the unresting castles thresh in full-grown thickness every May. Last year is dead, they seem to say. Begin afresh. A fresh, a fresh. Wow, where should we even begin with this poem? There's so many things to say. I suppose one thing just to notice right off the bat is the way that it is written in a kind of casual register. It is almost conversational, almost. I mean, it has this line, for example, right at the beginning. I really love the simile in line two because it's equating something almost being said with what he, the speaker, is also trying to say. It's as if in this moment he's saying, I see a tree and it's almost giving me the, it's almost helping me to articulate what it is that I truly feel. He's not come to the tree and then built on top of it this simile. He's had something he wishes to say, and the tree is like this occasion or this provocation for him to say it. The reason that he says it's almost being said is because there's just the beginning recent buds, that just a tiny little suggestion of leaves that might come out. And leaves, I guess, I'm stretching maybe a little, but the, the word leaf also means a page. So it's a page that you can write on. But I wouldn't take that analogy or, or rather allegory too far because it's a little more literal than that. A little. <laughs> He's not really talking. This is not a poem about poetry only. It is also every poem is sort of about poetry. But this is not really only about poetry. This is about the counterintuitive conclusion, I suppose, that uh, when you see renewal in spring, in May, the, this full-grown thickness, this is a kind of grief. That contrast in line four 
is really striking. First of all, I've got the alliteration of GR and GR, and the repetition there suggests that you wouldn't expect green, greenness to lead you to grief. It's usually, you know, I think to um, John Keats's uh, To Autumn, uh, where are the songs of spring? He asks. It's usual, in other words, that songs of spring and the re- refre- uh, uh, renewal are songs of, of hope, not of grief. I also love the sort of tenuousness or the tentativeness rather of line of the the phrase kind of a kind of grief sort of grief and then the reason he uses that that formulation is because he's not really sure what it is what is this kind of grief can he give can he give voice to it? Uh, and so he asks himself uh, line five is it that you know we move inexorably forward and they seem to move in a cyclical pattern that's every year but no ultimately they are going to die this is merely a trick it's a, in a merely an appearance of looking new and then you've got this lovely image of the written in rings of grain that is the the, the tree rings that they form uh, outward in concentric circles which of course sort of ironically you can only see once they've once they've died and and or you've cut them in the cross section so that gets us to the last stanza and then there's this this word that i confess i really puzzled over and i'm still not sure that i've got it it's the word thresh so this is from agriculture to thresh something is to separate the uh, the 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 wheat from the chaff for example the straw uh, from the grain and so it's a harvesting image it's also suggestive here i think of fertilization so they're threshing in the thickness because they are using the nutrients of the soil that they are somehow using the death of the last year in order to begin afresh they are using those nutrients. They are threshing in that full-grown thickness. And then in line 11, I love the sort of, again, the kind of casual uncertainty of they seem to say it's like a kind of grief in line four. And so this really simple, really small poem, well, it's anything but simple, it's quite short, uh, is, has this very powerful effect ultimately. I think what it tells you is that you can look at a tree and see the conventional thing, which is, ah, look, it's so delightful. It's sort of renewing itself. It's freshness, etc. And, and, or you can see that greenness as a kind of grief that is predicated on the death and decay of those past, the past greenness, the past hope that it had in the preceding year meaning that it's almost like an unrelenting, uh, unresisting, unyielding forward motion that just ignores uh, the, the sadness, the grief that has passed, but the poet is able to recognize it. Now we come to Larkin's best-known poem. Larkin admired W.B. Yeats in his youth, and he also tried to imitate his style. He later wrote that this poem, quote, will clearly be my Lake Isle of Innisfree, referring to Yeats's most inescapably popular poem. Larkin added, I fully expect to hear it recited by a thousand girl guides before I die. I don't think he got his wish. 
The thing that is so memorable about this poem is its poetic use of profanity. Well, that's one of the many things. The opening clause is funny. He's, uh, Larkin is supposed to have said, he said it was funny because it's ambiguous. He said, parents bring about your conception and then they also bugger you up once you are born. I'm not going to bleep out the F word in this poem. I'm going to just read it to you exactly the way it is. They fuck you up, your mom and dad. They may not mean to, but they do. They fill you with the faults they had and add some extra, just for you. But they were fucked up in their turn by fools in old-style hats and coats, who half the time were soppy stern and half at one another's throats. Man hands on misery to man. It deepens like a coastal shelf. Get out as early as you can, and don't have any kids yourself. There's so much that I love about this poem, but one of the things that I first noticed is that just having read it in right after the trees, it has exactly the same length, exactly the same uh, rhyme, uh, the same structure of three, four-line stanzas, and it also has the same kind of casualness of tone, but there's something <laughs> further. With the addition of the profanity, there's something in that tone that is a way more sort of frank, uh, way more direct. The tone at first is quite resentful of the parents for doing this, even though they don't mean to. They do fuck you up. They do bring to you the faults that they had and add extras that are entirely of their own making on your behalf, but stanza two, it's not really their fault when you consider the limitations of their own upbringing. The uh, compound word that caused me the most difficulty in this poem is, of course, line seven's soppy stern which means a sort of mix. Obviously, stern means, you know, the kind of stern authority that parents are expected to have. But soppy, uh, to, as a qualifier, means sort of like indulgent or um, the OED calls it foolishly affectionate. We might say infatuated. If you're soppy on someone, you're, so, you're feeling soppy, you're infatuated with a person, uh, sentimental. So it means that they weren't really quite sure how to act stern. They were both affectionate and stern at the same time, which I suppose may not, which is far less bad than, I don't know, being stern, just stern on its own. Uh, the other half, they were at another's throats because they were constantly fighting with another. The next line, I think, gives you, um, for me, it actually evokes this, this line uh, by William Wordsworth in a poem called Lines Written in Early Spring. He has this uh, poem in which he sits uh, reclined in a grove full of pleasant thoughts, looking at things. Uh, and it's also written in four-line stanzas of, uh, of um, ABAB rhyme scheme. But the, the end of the second, line eight is, or rather line seven to eight, much it grieved my heart to think what man has made of man. That is actually also the last line of that poem. And it's kind of about how nature gives you these alternate ways of being or ways of stepping outside of and, and observing uh, the inhumanities, the, the ways that uh, people m maltreat each other, handing on misery. Then you get uh, this lovely simile, this unexpected simile, kind of like uh, the one that you had in the trees, like something almost being said. But here it's like 
a coastal shelf. This, as you might remember from geography class, is that off the uh, sea coasts of the continents, there's this, there's this extended shelf, uh, and then, you know, there's just of a certain depth, and then at a certain distance away from the continents, that shelf falls off steeply to the abyss, uh, to the abyssal deep beyond. And so Larkin's advice here is to, for you to escape your parents as quickly as you possibly can and do not by any means pass on their errors to your own children. And so Larkin, who fathered no children of his own, took his own advice. This conclusion to a poem about the ravages of parental influence seems fitting, but it's a departure from the mood of the other poems that we've read today. Those were about time and love outlasting it, but even so, all of Larkin's poems have a melancholy aspect, a sense of something being lost, something in ruins, something that will be repurposed for other uses, whether it's the derelict church or the leaves littering the ground. Generations arise to replace those who birthed them, but they also need to escape those origins. And in Larkin's eyes, there's always a renewal of sorts, but it's a future that repudiates its past. You've been listening to Open Book, a podcast about interpreting literature with Michael Elliott. The next episode is the last of this season on two late 20th century poets who do qualify as famous, Ted Hughes and Seamus Heaney. Meanwhile, you can search me up in the usual places. It should turn up my blog if you spell my, my surname, U-L-L-Y-O-T, or go straight there by typing j.mp slash Elliot. You can also find me on Instagram, YouTube, and Goodreads in descending order of regularity. And then there's old-fashioned email, Elliot at ucalgary, that's U-C-A-L-G-A-R-Y dot C-A. The music from this episode is courtesy of the Open Goldberg Variations Project and performed by Kimiko Ishizaka. Mm-hmm.